You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. It's the Gospel of John, beginning chapter 11, verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not, understand that these, did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And verse 21 as well. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Holy Father, in the name of the risen Son, we unworthy sinners saved by your grace come to you pleading that your sent Spirit would so bless us now as the church of Christ to understand these things. To not be ignorant of them as as the disciples are in the moment. But to understand them in light of the risen Son. And then seeing the truth laid before us in this text to worship as Mary does without reserve laying our all before you before your son we ask this in the name of Christ amen Jesus is entering triumphantly into the city, follows his burial preparations in Bethany. And then if it seems odd that triumphal entry, a triumphal entry would follow burial preparations, you've failed to understand the gospel of John. You've failed to understand the message of the cross. The raising of Lazarus prepares the way for the laying down of Jesus' life. The raising of Lazarus makes way both for Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Sunday and his exit from Jerusalem on Good Friday. The raising of Lazarus explains both the triumphal entry and the shameful walk to, to Golgotha. So the raising of Lazarus leads to the faith and excitement of the people, which then leads to the Sanhedrin plotting to take his life. And in all their plotting, we see the plan of God standing supreme over the sin of men for the salvation of sinners. John has written this gospel so that we don't, read these events in the way the disciples experience them. Verse 16, the disciples did not understand these things at first. So as you read this, you're meant to understand their misunderstanding. Which is to say, you're to read these not as they experienced them, but as they came to understand them. You are meant to read of the dark day of Jesus' death in the light of the risen sun. You're not to read of Jesus' death and all the plotting and planning that's unfolding here. You're not to read of it as Caiaphas intended to speak of it. You're meant to read of it as he unwittingly, prophetically spoke of it. 
You're meant to see the divine irony and the divine laughter that is at play here as the rulers of this world try to cast apart the bonds of the Lord and His anointed King. We read this text, and again and again, we're taken back to Lazarus. And again and again, Lazarus is spoken of as he whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Verse 1, verse 9, verse 17. By this sign that's excited the people and exasperated the leaders, Jesus demonstrates He is the resurrection and the life. 11.25 Proceed to the cross, recognizing that the person going there is the resurrection and the life. He's just demonstrated that it's exasperated the leaders, and their answer to it is, kill him. He's the resurrection and the life, and their solution to this is to kill him. By their plotting and scheming, all they've done is provide him with an elevated stage to declare that loud. So, as you see, I hope you begin to get some inkling, it'll grow more clear. Jesus' being prepared for burial, then entering the city triumphantly, are not at odds. They're in perfect harmony. You see that in Christ then we have not only a Savior, we have a Sovereign. Remember His words in John 10. For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It was not their plans that determined the day, but His. The cross is not a tragedy. It reveals the tragedy of human sinfulness supremely. There's no greater revelation of man's sinfulness than the cross of Christ. But the message of the cross of Christ is not the sinfulness of man. We could get that message otherwise. It just so happens that in the message of the cross of Christ, the sinfulness of man is supremely manifest. But the message of the cross is not the tragedy of man's sinfulness. It is the triumph of divine grace. And the cross tells us that man is not more sinful than God is gracious. It is a sovereign who saves us. Even sin, the greatest expression of sin, is subservient towards that very end. So this is why the triumphal entry can follow burial preparations. The opening setting is a dinner setting, verses 1 through 11. It is six days before the Passover, we are told. The Passover. When you hear those words again, six days for the Passover, and hear them afresh as they're prefaced by Caiaphas' unwitting prophecy. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. 11, 50, 49 through 55. So the Passover, that sign of signs commemorating their deliverance from Egypt by God's providing the blood of the Lamb in place of the firstborn so that the firstborn would not perish, so that the nation would not perish. And now the Passover is at hand And the high priest is saying, one should die in place of the many. And because the Passover draws near, Jesus draws near. You're just told in chapter 11, he wasn't walking openly anymore. He's withdrawn. But now the Passover, only six days away, Jesus draws near again to Bethany. Remember whenever he's first coming to Bethany, The disciples don't understand Jesus to be going to a dead man. They understand him to be going to his death. And so they say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And even after Jesus explains to him, Lazarus is dead. Thomas says to the other disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. 11.16 Now he's also, he's gone back. And he's raised Lazarus. The people are excited, which means the leaders are more enraged. He's going back to Bethany. So that mood of of expectation of him dying that was present at the beginning of chapter 11 is now amplified even more. He's going back to Bethany, back to Judea, six days before the Passover. Notice how Bethany is identified. It's Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. When I say Chernobyl, a singular event comes to your mind. An event so momentous that that's the only association I'm going to guess most of you have with Chernobyl. And likewise, something so momentous has happened at Bethany. Bethany! Where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus raised from the dead. You see, death and resurrection permeate this text, dominate your mind as you're reading it. Jesus comes to Bethany and they gave a dinner for him. They is unidentified. You automatically assume, don't you, that it's the family of Lazarus. But the synoptic gospels prove that that's too narrow. Matthew and Mark tells us that this was held in the house of Simon the leper, whom I think it's safe to presume is one whom Jesus had healed from his leprosy. And so it seems as, a, a, as though those in, in Bethany to whom Christ is ministered, they want to have a feast to express hospitality to Jesus and his disciples. 
They give this dinner for him. And as we would expect, Martha is serving. Lazarus is no doubt the second most popular guest at this feast. Not in competition with Jesus, but in compliment to Jesus. And so he's reclined at table with Christ. And we're rightly expecting to see Mary at Jesus' feet. But whenever we do, even so, we're shocked. As she anoints his feet and wipes them with her hair. Such an act would be thought to be excessive. She takes a pound of pure nard, a pound, a litre, literally, 11.5 ounces approximately. So a small glass Coke bottle of pure nard. This ointment would have been made from the extract from the spike nard plant. Very aromatic. Think something like this would be uh, something like essential oils in its potency, but more like ointment probably in its, in, its, uh, in its texture. This would be potent stuff. It would be plenty of stuff. Matthew and Mark tell us that this was contained within an alabaster flask. So it's an expensive ointment in an expensive container. And this alabaster flask would have had a kind of neck-like opening to allow a little bit out at a time. And Mark adds that she broke this alabaster flask. Likely it's the neck that she broke it, proving too small to get out the ointment, the amount that she wants. With, she wants to anoint him with all of it. And so she breaks the flask. And this really does seem excessive upon excessiveness whenever you read it, just strictly as you have it in John, that she's anointing his feet. But when we look at Matthew and Mark... She pours it out on his head as well. And the sense of what's happening here is disclosed in Matthew's gospel whenever he speaks of her pouring this ointment on my body. So it's running down his head and onto his body. Mark, he says, she has anointed my body. But even so, you get the sense of of the excessiveness and that the fragrance of this fills the whole house. But not only would it be thought excessive, it would have been thought expensive, too expensive. First, you're just generally told that the ointment was expensive. But later, you come to learn that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. A denarius was the day's wage for a day labor. So if you're just a common day laborer, you got a denarius for that day's wage. You exclude the Sabbaths and other holy days from the Jewish calendar on which they did not work. This was over a year's wage for the common man. Poured out on Jesus at the single meal. It would have been thought excessive. It would have been thought excessive. It would also be thought extravagant. I think it's hard to say for the average Jew what would have been thought more outrageous. The pouring out of this pound of pure nard 
or the letting down of her hair to wipe his feet. Mary uses her glory to wipe the feet of her Lord. It sets up quite a contrast with Caiaphas, doesn't it? Contrast Mary's extravagance with Caiaphas' expediency. With both of them, we can see them eaten up with zeal and passion. Both of them have in view the death of our Lord. But how different the acts, how different the heart. Even so, the stated objections to her acts by the disciples, as we have it spoken of in the Synoptic Gospels, not just Judas, but by all the disciples, the stated objection to her act was not the extravagance of wiping his feet with her hair, but the expense, the waste, they call it, in Matthew and Mark. And here, if we're not identifying the ringleader behind this objection then we at least are definitely given an x-ray vision into the heart of one of the objectors. Whatever the reasons of the other disciples in protesting Mary's act, Judas's was one of pure hypocrisy. D.A. Carson comments, if self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs out genuine compassion, It must also be admitted with shame that social activism, even that which meets real needs, sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship or adoration. Yeah, sometimes you can be so self-righteous and and pious that you don't really concern about your brother. And sometimes you, you look like you're concerned about your brother, but there's no worship of God involved in it. But for Judas, it's much worse There's no concern for his Lord. There's no concern for the poor here. No concern for the poor, just a concern to pilfer. Mary looked at this nard as a substance to anoint for burial. Judas looked at it as a substance to liquidate for embezzlement. Judas' behavior is more outrageous whenever you look to Luke 8, 2, and 3. The only place where you're given any insight into those who are supporting Jesus in His ministry. And what you see there, and only, is a number of women who are supporting Jesus' ministry out of their own means. And And Judas is pocketing this. Jesus rebukes this rebuke. He says in verse 7, this has been done For the day of his burial. And such actions would not be recognized as as excessive in that light. Not so excessive anyway. Remember it's just a matter of weeks, days earlier. Whenever Jesus asked for the stone to be rolled away. Martha objected. Lord by this time there will be an odor. For he has been dead four days. And so there would be these initial preparations. Such as we see with Jesus. And then returning three days later, there would be these preparations to slow down decomposition, to delay the smell. But at four days, too much time has gone by. So such behavior is understandable. This is normal practice. The poor 
Jesus says, will always be with them. He's not saying you don't care for the poor. He's saying you'll always have that opportunity to care for the poor. This is being done for the day of my burial. You will not always have me with you. The justification for Mary's behavior is that this is Jesus, and it's done in view of his burial. Her actions are neither excessive, expensive, or extravagant. It's as though the disciples have grown too accustomed to the humility of their Lord. They've seen the Lord of glory clothed in human flesh, living without a place to lay his head, and they've forgotten the glory that if they should catch a glimpse of in this moment, they would recognize Mary's actions are not excessive, they are too small. Compared to what he is due. True worship. The true spirit of worship. Never thinks such an act of devotion. Excessive. It always thinks it too small. Too little. We may worship our Lord wrongly. But we cannot worship him excessively. We cannot worship him too extravagantly. You may give in poor stewardship in such a way that you're not able to give any more. But you cannot give too much of your life, your time, of everything and sacrifice all to His kingdom and His glory in every sphere of your life. What Jesus' understanding of this and all that's happening here Can you see how he's more prepared for his death than the Pharisees are, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees? Jesus is making preparations and everything is going smoothly. He's prepared for his death. They're making all these plans again and again and they're failing and fumbling and and coming to nothing. When the crowds learn that Jesus has come to... Bethany, they come, verse 9. They come not only to see Jesus, they come to see Lazarus. And again, we're told it's Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. The smell and death and resurrection continue to fill this text the way the smell of the nard filled that house. And as a result of this, the chief priest makes plans then to execute Lazarus as well, verse 10. So resolute that they must snuff out belief in Jesus, that they reckon they must snuff out Lazarus as well, lest the Romans stamp out the nation. Expediency and pragmatism have full control of the engine, and it is full steam ahead now. And even so, we see that the Jesus who came to Bethany now is coming to Jerusalem, verse 12. He's not coming quietly as he did in chapter 7 and the Feast of Booths. A large crowd goes out to welcome him with palm branches. Palm branches are associated with the Feast of Booths, but not with the Feast of Passover. What are they doing here? 
They became something of a national symbol under the Maccabean deliverers sometime earlier. Whenever later we see the Jewish and Roman wars, it's striking that when insurgents, Jewish insurgents, would strike Jewish coins, they had palms on them. Here's this national symbol, and the king is being held as coming into town. You see? Matthew and Mark tells us that the crowds were laying down their garments and leafy branches in front of him, making them this, this road. And that as they welcome him into the city, they cry out with the words of the 118th Psalm, which is the last psalm of the Hallel. Hallel being the word for praise. The praise. Psalms 113 through 118 were sung during the Passover. And they pick up on the final psalm as they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. When you look at Psalm 118, the bulk of it is in the singular. And there you have God giving the king deliverance from the nations that have surrounded him. And the king then calling on the people to praise Yahweh for his covenant faithfulness. And confident that Yahweh is his song, his strength, and his salvation, the king exclaims, Psalm 118, 17, and 18, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of Yahweh. Yahweh has disciplined me severely. But he has not given me over to death. And so the king is leading the people to praise the steadfast love of Yahweh. And as he's doing this, it's natural then that you see a turn from the singular where the king is speaking to the plural. And here's how that turn happens. Psalm 118, 22 and 24 through 24. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Remember, what they're doing here is now praising God for His covenant faithfulness to their king and His deliverance from the nations. The king who was severely disciplined and not given over to death. They continue. This is the day that Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Those words immediately precede the quote that we have here. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The first words of Psalm 118.25, as you have it translated from the Hebrew, tell you what Hosanna means. Psalm 118.25, save us, we pray. Hosanna, save us, we pray. Save us, we pray, became this singular, one-word expression of, Of hope and longing and praise. Save us we pray. What does that mean in answer? Behold. 
the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. The words you have following, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, are not in Psalm 118.25. They're not in the Hebrew text. They are their right interpretation of who the person is that comes in the name of the Lord. Who is the one who's coming in the name of the Lord? It's their king. And in that king, they are seeing the answer to their prayer, Hosanna! Save us, we pray. Listen to how Psalm 118 continues. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. We bless you from the house of Yahweh. Yahweh is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Bind the sacrifice to the altar. He who comes. That helps us make sense of some earlier expressions we've seen in John. Take one instance. Listen to Mary's confession again and see if it doesn't have more meaning. Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. John eleven twenty seven. 27. You're the one who is coming. Now read again verse 12. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's come. But look at how he's come. Verses 14 and 15. On a young donkey, just as it was written in Zechariah 9. This was prophesied. So that's why he's on a donkey. But what's the meaning of it? What's the significance of this? Before Zechariah 9.9, which is quoted, you see Yahweh dealing with the nations, triumphing over those that have rebelled against Him. And then in 9.9, there's a turn from the nations to Israel. So 9.9 through 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because the blood of my covenant, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. The king rides into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. He rides in humbly, and with a message of peace. He's already dealt with the nations in Zechariah 9. Then turning towards Jerusalem, he comes riding on a donkey 
humble, with peace. The king has not come on a war horse to shed blood. He's come on a donkey to lay his life down and pour out the blood of the covenant with them. The anointing at Bethany was perfect preparation for this entry. Looking ahead to the cross itself, John Stott unfolds something of the paradox involved. What looks like, and indeed was, the defeat of goodness by evil is also and more certainly the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he was himself overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor, and the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. Riding towards his death, Jesus was riding towards triumph in this moment. And he does so prepared for burial. This time, though, as these events are transpiring, the disciples don't understand anything of this, verse 16. We saw this earlier in the cleansing of the temple, chapter 2 and verse 22. They didn't understand that until he had been raised from the dead. They don't understand this until he's been glorified. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered them. John 14, 26 serves as a commentary on how this came about. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So they understand these things as the Father sends the Spirit in the name of the Son, in the name of His risen and ascended and seated at His right hand, Son, who then sends a spirit, pours it out upon his church. The triumphal entry is not a puzzle, as you see burial frames it on one side and the cross on the other. That's exactly how this triumphant entry should be framed. That is the way by which he triumphs. We then get some information that explains why the large crowd has gone out to Jesus. Verses 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So they've been bearing witness. They continue to do. The city is swelling with all these Jews coming to the Passover. And as they do, all the buzz is about Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And the reason the crowd goes out to meet him is because they heard that he's done this sign. So this is something of a flashback explaining why is this crowd going out to Jesus. And this flashback sets you up to understand the Pharisees' reaction. In despair, they say again, this is all in vain. You see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Their plots fail. They're in vain. Whenever their plots succeed, and Jesus is on the cross, they're still in vain. They've gained 
nothing. The world has gone after him. They intend that statement as an exaggeration, as hyperbole. Look, the world's gone after him. God, again in his divine irony, intended it to express so much more. You remember in Caiaphas' words, it's better that one should perish than that the whole nation. John went on to explain he spoke this because not only would Jesus die for the nation, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Early on, we heard John herald Christ at this way. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, you have the high priest wanting to sacrifice the Lamb of God at the Passover so that the nation might not perish. And the world is going after him. In 10, 11, and 16, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And here we are, and immediately after this statement, they intend as exact, they, they're just speaking with hyperbole. Look, the whole world has gone after him. What do we see immediately after that? Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some... Greeks. So they, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The world is going after him. As the sixth century hymn, the royal banners go forward, says, Fulfilled is all that David told in sure prophetic song of old. That God the nation's king should be. And reign in triumph. From the tree. Throughout our meditation on this text. My concern. Has been to impress upon you. Seeing Christ rightly. Therein. He is sovereign. And he is savior. He is a sovereign savior. But I want you to take a moment. To reflect and ask if you see something of yourself in the persons of this text. Are you like the priest, the Pharisees? Plotting and planning, looking at Jesus and asking, what am I to do? You're worried about holding on to as much of your sin as you can. And yet you're scared at the truth of who he's testified to be. Because you're comfortable in this world. Repent. All your scheming is in vain. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll be saved because just as sure as your rebellion against Him is all in vain. Just as sure as that rebellion is that just as sure as if you would repent. There's mercy and grace in Christ. Are you like the crowds? Is yours the kind of fickle faith that springs up quickly and then withers away just as quickly? It's the seed that's cast on stony ground. 
Are you excited about Jesus only so long as he's the kind of savior you want and you long for? But then whenever you begin to discover more and more something of the truth of who he is, well, you don't want that Jesus. You need this Jesus. The Jesus who is sovereign and savior. Not just a Jesus to deal with your problems so that then you can go on and and live comfortably and, and have him to do as you wish. Jesus who not only saves you from your sins in the sense of forgiveness, but he saves you from them in the sense of them dominating your life. Or are you worse yet? Are you a false disciple like Judas? Are you not simply disillusioned, as the crowds were, but despicable? Following, false, uh, following Christ for false aims and purposes is holy religion just a means for unholy ends. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Welcome His rebuke. Even my righteousness is as filthy rags. It's all been done for self, not, not unto you. Welcome his rebuke. Repent of your sins and trust in the Christ who's worthy of your all. Or perhaps you're like these true disciples whose understanding is weak. They don't understand all these things in this moment. And may your faith now grow and flourish as you see that your Savior is sovereign and that your sovereign is Savior. Doubt neither His love nor His power, but know they're wed together for your good. And doubt not, even in the dark days. Or finally, perhaps, and hopefully, most of all, I pray that every one of you are finding in your heart at least something of Mary. No doubt she was just as weak in knowledge as the other disciples, as what to us transpire. But she was zealous to worship. I don't think Mary sees all, but what she sees is Jesus. She just simply and truly sees something of who Jesus is. And it's no question to her of whether or not her actions are or are perceived by others to be excessive, expensive. Or extravagant. Our best is far too little. For the sovereign savior. Who laid down his life. And took it up again for our salvation. So look to Christ now. Look to him going to his grave. Clothed in triumph. Riding forward in magnificence and glory. As he who is the resurrection and life. And seeing it laid down everything. All of you. Lay down at his feet. And put it before him. And worship him without reserve. Without question. Without hesitation. Our worship is weak oil. But by his grace. May the fragrance 
of Christ, crucified, buried, and risen, fill this house now as we pour out that weak oil before His feet. And He anoints our worship by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, right now, grant repentance so those who have only worshipped self might worship the Son who's worthy of all glory. Lord, right now, grant repentance so that we who have been bought by Your blood and we've been brought near and we, we know You, but our faith has been weak, been distracted, draw our gaze to You. Remind us that You're not only our Savior, You're sovereign and You're Lord. And You're worthy of all. Father, may we not just be absorbed by Your humility, Lord Jesus, but we, may we remember You are the risen Christ who sits at the Father's right hand, who's putting all enemies under His feet. May this move us now freshly to lay all before you in worship. And may it also stir us to cry out with assurance and confidence, Hosanna, save us we pray. Come Lord Jesus, come again. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.